All right, we're in 2 Samuel 7. Let me kind of explain where we're at, what we're going through. Um, we went through 1 Samuel, and you guys know it's really focusing on Samuel as a child, anointing King Saul, then anointing the future king, David. 1 Samuel has primarily focused on Saul during his reign as king. And David in exile, fleeing from Saul. We read a lot of those stories. 2 Samuel now introduces David as the king. So 2 Samuel primarily, even though it's one book, it's actually like one scroll, but now two books. Now this focuses on David's kingdom, David's reign. We saw that David was anointed king three times, once by Samuel, the prophet in private, once by the tribe of Judah, and then the, by the rest of the other tribes in chapter five. So David's had three anointing, three anointings. He is the king. He's the recognized king of Israel. Last week in chapter six, we saw something very important. It's like his first decree as king was bring back the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem, back to the center of the people. David's like, uh, finally the king, like really, really the king now. All tribes recognize him as the one true king. His first order of business is, I don't want to do this without God. God must be at the center. And we saw last week, and I would really encourage you to go back to that message if you missed it. We talked about seeking the presence of God. How do we, above everything else, have the presence of God at the center of everything we do? David had a beautiful desire. It was awesome. Now here in chapter seven, David wants to continue to build off that momentum. And he's like, not just the ark. He's like, how about everything? I want to build God a a house. I want to build God a temple. Like God, I don't want him to dwell in tents anymore. I want him to have his own temple, his own house, something here in Jerusalem that people can go to and worship. So David, in a sense now is like, let's, let's one up this. Now, this is a very, very important chapter to the whole of the Bible. It is. One author said this. He says, 2 Samuel 7 is by far the most significant chapter thus far in the Old Testament. That's what one author says. Now I'm like, I don't know. I cannot, there's a lot of other chapters I think that are important, but this is good. He's saying this, this far, this is the most important chapter. Why is that? Because in the book of Matthew and the book of Luke, it's building off of 2 Samuel 7. In the book of Matthew chapter 1, and also in the, the gospel of Luke, you see the genealogy of Jesus. And it's referring back to 2 Samuel 7, saying, look, the one has come, the son of David, the, the king that's going to reign forever. The one that was promised to David, he has come. 2 Samuel 7, this chapter we're looking at, is basically a promise to David that the kingdom shall forever rule and reign from your blood, from your dynasty. Ultimately, Jesus on both sides being a son of David. It says in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, this is how the New Testament begins, right? It begins based off building 2 Samuel 7. Uh, Matthew 1, 1 says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Our new covenant, the, 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 the gospel of Matthew it begins by saying, don't forget, this is the son of David. We're building off that genealogy. So 2 Samuel 7 is huge. Um, I, there's some debate around this, but there are primarily five covenants we see in the Old Testament, or five covenants we see in the scriptures. Uh, you, have the Abra- you have first the Noahic covenant. This is the covenant, first of all, given to Noah, where God's like, hey, I'll no longer judge the world through a flood of water. He'll judge the world, but not through this means. But there's a Noahic covenant. There's the Abrahamic covenant. God promises to Abraham in Genesis 12, your descendants shall be like the stars in the sky, the sands in the sea. I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who curse you. There's Abrahamic covenant. Then we see the Mosaic covenant where the law is given to Moses. We see this in Exodus and in Deuteronomy, but we see this covenant given to Moses. The fourth covenant we see in scripture is here in 2 Samuel 7. This is the Davidic covenant. This is the covenant that God gives to David and his family after him. 
the generations after him, how the Messiah will come from him, how the king that will rule and reign forever will come from David. So this is what we call the Davidic covenant. The last or the fifth covenant is also in the Old Testament, it's Jeremiah 31. In Jeremiah 31, God says, I will give you one day a new covenant. And I'll no longer write on tablets of stone, but on the flesh of hearts. And Jeremiah 31 was ultimately fulfilled at that Passover table where Jesus says, this is the new covenant. Remember that new covenant Jeremiah talked about? This is the new covenant that I give to you. And so we see really five covenants in the Old Testament. And we see this is the fourth one today, the Davidic covenant. You guys with me? Yes? All right. Okay, cool. Um, So this is the fourth covenant we see. And here's the idea today. David's desire is simply this. I want to build God a house. Then God says, no, David, you won't build me a house. I want to build you a house. And then David's like, okay, yeah, build me a house. This word house is mentioned 15 times. This is kind of the focus. So the title today is simply a house forever, a house forever. God loves to build houses. (laughs) And I want us to see what what kind of house was God referring to for David. He kind of redefines that word house. So um, why don't we just pray? Why don't we pray before we read chapter 7? Let's pray and just kind of invite the Lord here and to speak to us and God, build, build your house. Let's do that. Father, we just want to thank you. We thank you that we can slow down. We can open up your word. That we can read something like in, in the Samuels and see how there's significance today. How ultimately what you promised David was fulfilled in your son, Jesus. We thank you for this covenant that you gave him, not based off how good David performed, but based off how good you are. And uh, Lord, I just ask that you would speak to our hearts, that we would see the relevance today for us as well. God, that you promise in so many different ways that you will build your church, that this is yours. This is your house. This is your church. These are your people. But Lord, more importantly, that your kingdom will rule and reign forever that nothing can thwart that or change that, that that though it feels like at times we don't see it or maybe are we losing, is the church losing? We see that Jesus, you have in a kingdom that has no end. And we just want to praise you and thank you. And we want to be part of that. We want to join you. We want to rest in what you've done. And just thank you, Jesus, in your wonderful name. Amen. Uh, this February, in just a few months, my wife and I will be celebrating 15 years of marriage. 15 years, crazy. Yeah, I didn't really say it for that, but that's, it's crazy. You know, we got married when I was um, like 14, so only 29. No, but it's crazy. 15 years, 15 years. And it was about this time, I remember 15 years ago, we were apartment hunting. And I remember like going to different cities, different places, looking for an apartment, like our first place to move into. And all of you who are married or about to be, like, you know the excitement of just like, oh my gosh, our first place together, that excitement there. And we found a little apartment, it's called Maranatha Apartments, it really was. Maranatha Apartments, even our apartment was a Christian. It's crazy. Um, it's like Maranatha, right? Come Lord Jesus apartments is where we first moved to in, in Costa Mesa. That's really what it was. And it was so, I remember when we first moved in, it was so sweet. It was so special. Like it was ours. Now, listen, it was filled with thousands of cockroaches and, and black mold, but it was our cockroaches and our black mold. You know what I mean? Um, we don't find that out later, but moving in, so sweet, like coming home together, like, this is making it our place. I think I picked, you know, there's maybe one thing in that house that reflects me, even to this day. Everything's my wife's, like, choice. But it's great. It's way better than my choice. And there's, there's something about just a house. There's something about coming home to someone. There's something about making it your own space. You know, I think about the home I grew up in as a kid. I lived in one house my whole life up until when I moved out. And that house, was, it's special to me. I love it. And I think about this, like, all the emotions, the memories, the things that are attached to a house. It's unbelievable. 
Now you think about it, though, without people, without people in the house, it's just kind of lonely. It's kind of nothing. I think over time you realize it's not so much about the physical space, it's about the people that make it special. You know, we know that a home is not really a place, it's a, it's a people. It's, it's, it's people you come home to. And you think about, obviously, this idea in the church, it's, it's not so much about a building. It's never really been about that. It's been about the people. It's been about, primarily for us, it's been about God at the center of his people. And it's not so much, again, about a physical structure per se, but it's just there's something special about a community. It's about people coming home, seeing each other, like loving each other. And I think about just the, those first houses. David, in his heart, is like, God, I have a beautiful house. I want to build you a house. I want you to have a house. If you read this chapter, we're, gonna, we're going to, the word house is mentioned 15 times, 15 times. So that's like the emphasis. It's all about a house. However, it's mentioned in like three different contexts. Contexts. It's mentioned as like a house David lives in, a house he wants to build for God, like a temple. But it's also mentioned not, when God uses the word house, he's using it not as a physical thing, but as like a dynasty. I want to build you a house, David. I want to build you a dynasty. So it's used about David's actual house, a temple. And it's also used just about this dynasty of kingdoms, of a king to rule and reign forever. And I love this idea. He's like, let me repurpose this word. And so I want us to like really connect the dots because this is so, so beautiful, so important. David's like, ah, you've been in a tabernacle. You've been in a tent. God, you need a house. And God's like, mm, you need a house. And let me explain. So there's really three points today. And it's more of like actually, like, actually the, the flow of the story. Here's the first one. The first point, it's simple. It's David. God, I want to build you a house. Number two, verse four through 17, we're gonna see God say, no, no, David, I want to build you a house. And then verse 18, 29, David's like, yeah, I want you to build me that house. <laughs> I love this. I want to build you a house, God. God's like, I want to build you a house. He's like, yeah, can you build me that house that you talked about? That was so great. Um, so I, so even walking through this, I was kind of like, this is David, the idea. I'm trying to give you another kind of way to break this up. It's our plans, God's promises, our prayer. That's kind of the flow of this. So let's look at David's heart. The, the, remember the context, the Ark of the Covenant just came back in. And now David's like, I want to build God a house. So let's read that part. Verse one, Second Samuel chapter seven, Verse one, it says, now when the king, by the way, I just want to stop there. It's really interesting. Um, sorry, you're like, what, really? <laughs> no, welcome to the exchange. Um, when I was reading through this, this is like the first time we really just see David dressed as like the king in this way. Like he's been called, you know, now David, now David, chapter six, David, David. He's like, now the king, he brings the Ark of the Covenant back in. He wants to build it. Now the king, the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Stop there. I love this. David's like, ah, I'm dwelling in this amazing palace. We're told in 2 Samuel 5, you can go back and listen or go back and read it. Uh, the king of Tyre actually built David this house as like a present. Like you're the king, we're another country, we're recognizing you. We want to build you a house, David. David, Josephus talks about that palace as a beautiful house, a beautiful palace. And he's like, look, I dwell in this amazing house. I want to build God a house. Now, I think this is why we see just right away, even though David will, and we'll, trust me, we'll get to it. He has his flaws. He has some insane issues. However, just you see right away and early on, he's like, we need the presence of God. God needs a house. You see this beautiful heart for God. Actually, it, it appears to be that even when David was in the wilderness, before he was the king, when he's being chased by, by uh, Saul, David seemed to have this idea that like, what is God doing being in, in a tent? We need to build God a house. Listen to this. It's in Psalm 132. Listen to what David says. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. 
David's like, I will not rest. I will not sleep until I can find God as a dwelling place. Like I, God needs a place. David's heart and desire was good. It was good. Actually, Solomon reflecting on this later, uh, Solomon, who we know would be the one who would build this house. So David's son, we'll get to that. But Solomon said this in 1 Kings 8, 18. Now, I just want to point this out before you kind of hear the negative of it. Solomon says, the Lord said to my father, David, whereas it was in your heart to build a temple for my name, you did well. That was in your heart. You did well. I want you to hear this because God's like, David, you did well. It's a great desire. It's the thought that matters, right? But David's not going to build this house. He's not going to be able to build this house. We'll look at that in a second. But it was a good desire. Like, I don't want to move on from that. It was beautiful. It's saying, look at my life. God has been so good. How can I not care about the things of God? There hopefully is that sort of realization in our lives. Like, everything we have is a gift from God. The air we breathe, the food we eat, the friendships we have. Like, every, even if you feel like you don't have a lot, everything you and I have, we have this beautiful thing called common grace. We have, we have so much. And David's like, look, I have so much. How can I not do something for him? It was a good desire. He won't be able to fulfill it. He won't be able to do it. He is told no. And I want to tell you this, like he's told no, but it's probably the best no he's ever gotten. David in this prayer, like he's like, God, I want to do something for you. God's like, no, but I actually want to do something for you. And it's sweet because, you know, what a beautiful desire. What a hard thing to be told no to do. Like, no, I, I can't do that. That can't be my legacy. No, but God's like, I have something better in store and in mind for you. I want to point this out. This is the first time Nathan is introduced. Nathan the prophet says, like, it's kind of assumed like we know who Nathan is. First time Nathan's mentioned, we'll see Nathan mentioned again and again. Nathan is a good prophet. He's a good friend. He's going to confront David after, you know, he sleeps with Bathsheba and kills her husband. Like, Nathan's a good friend, a good prophet. Even though right here, it's like Nathan's kind of in a good mood. <laughs> I don't know what's going on. He's like, I want to build God a house. He's like, yeah, do all that's in your heart. Like, I don't know if he just caught him at the right time. I have no idea. David, now, Nathan wasn't like the Lord has said. He's just like, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead and do that. Build, build God a house. Why not? I don't know. Again, like, I have kids and my son is starting to learn when to ask me for things and when not to ask me for things. I even saw my wife the other day, like, don't ask dad right now, ask him later. And I'm like, hey, don't coach him on how to do this. Like, that's not good. And I don't know if David just caught him at a good moment, at a good time, but he's like, yeah, go do all that's in your heart. Now, before, you know, we're going to see a change of direction here, but I want to point this out with Nathan and David, because this is beautiful. David's like, you know what? I want to build out a house. Nathan, is this good? Nathan's like, I'm, David is seeking Nathan's direction. Basically, a prophet was the one, like that spokesperson for God, essentially. And so David's desire is good. It's a good desire and he's doing it a good way. He's going to a spiritual leader and saying, hey, is this good for me to do? It's like, yeah, go and do it. Before David does anything, he, cult, he, he consults with spiritual resources. The, the point is, David actually is like, God, I want to know if you're in this. Like, I want to know if you're in this. I want to know if you're for this. What a beautiful thing. I try to just play around with this or write this out. Nothing profound, but just a simple question. Is there anything you're trying to do right now, but you're not consulting God's word? Is there anything you're trying to do but you don't want God's word to speak into it. I think it's a very dangerous thing to be like, you know what, but I feel this way. I feel like I should do this. I feel like I should build God a house. I feel like I should. It's really wise to consult with God's word. It's really wise to consult with God's people. Before you make a decision based off emotions, consult with others. Even though Nathan got it wrong, and we're gonna see him correct, which I also appreciate. Nathan's gonna correct the advice he said, like go and do it. And I'm like, actually, wait, God spoke to me. But before we, we see that, David had a good desire and he did it. He went about it in a good way. I would say this, like we can't, I can't move on from this. If there's anything in your life right now that you're doing or pursuing after, but you're not consulting God's word, like hit the brakes, consult God's word, consult God's people. doesn't matter what you think about it. It doesn't matter what you feel about it. God, are you in this? Are you doing this? Should I, should I pursue this? Should I be about this? What David is doing is very wise. So David says, God, I want to build you a house. Nathan's like, go man, go do all that's in your heart. This is good. This is really good. 
but he got it wrong. And now we're going to see number two in verse four. We're going to see God's like, no, 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 David, I want to build you a house. All right, so this is kind of the second theme, I guess. Let's look at verse four. It's so sweet. Verse four, that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. And he says, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Verse 8. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant, David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all of your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. The Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Now, before we just actually break down what God said, let me say this. This is actually the longest speech from God recorded since the book of Exodus. This is, a, I mean, it's kind of crazy to think about. Like, listen, we just, like, you know, I know all of God's word is God's word. But it really is cool to read to me a quote coming to God speaking to Nathan. Like, this is just God speaking to Nathan. We're hearing God's heart. I almost just want to slow down and be like, I don't know if we, by the way, just whenever we read the word, read it, read it with that mindset. Like, this is God speaking. God is speaking. I need to slow down a little bit. I mean, some powerful things God said. He's rehearsing their history. There's some powerful things being said. But I also want to move on from like, God is speaking. We should be listening. Now, God is speaking to Nathan to give this message to David. Now, notice what he says right away. This is fascinating to me. Actually, we'll put it up again just so you can see it in verse 7. He says, Where have I moved about with all the children of Israel? Have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel whom I command to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? God's like, David, you want to build me a house? Like, follow along. David, you want to build me a house? But have I ever asked for one? I've never even asked for one. I've never told the judges. I've never told Moses. Like, now make sure we leave and abandon this whole tabernacle thing and go straight to a building. God's like, no, I've never asked for this. I want to build you a house. Let me just point this out. Why does this matter? When you read about the tabernacle, the tabernacle is built in such a way to be mobile. The tabernacle is built in a way to be like, where my people go, I go. This is the first point. This is called the incarnation principle. This is so beautiful to me. God is like, if my people are there, I'm going to be there. If my people are suffering, I'm going to be suffering with them. I'm going to be the center of basically where they gather, where they meet. But this idea of the tabernacle being mobile is super significant. God's like, I've never asked for a permanent building that does not move. Like all the other gods that want a palace, 
like all the other gods that other men serve and worship. They want a beautiful temple, a beautiful palace to live in. I don't want that. I want this humble tabernacle that you can break down, that you can set up, that you can meet and gather in. Basically, I want to just be with you. It's never been about the, the beauty of the temple itself. It's never been about the location itself. It's been about, I just want to be with my people. This is the kind of God we worship. This is so different than the gods. Of, think about the gods of their day and age. Think about like, even the pharaohs and building certain things for their gods. I mean, this is like kind of what they came out of. It was like, let's build you something beautiful and grand and significant. We want all the other nations to see this and go, oh my gosh, our God must be true because look how amazing that temple is. He's like, not me. I've been a God who just wants to be with you. Do we not see this about our God? This idea of God just wanting to be with his people. If you set up and go, I'm going to go with you. We serve a God from the very beginning who just simply wants to be with his people. I almost can't, I can't move on from this to get over this. God's like, I've never asked for this. I love your desire, David. Remember 1 Kings 8, 18? Like, great desire. Love it. But I've never asked for it. I just want to be with you. Do we realize that we serve a God who simply just wants to be with us? He's like, it's not so much about these grand things you have in mind for me or you want to do for me. I just want to be with you. That is something so unique, so beautiful. God's like, where you go, I want to go. So basically, the Lord is telling David no in a really nice way. <laughs> David's, God's like, no, you can't build me a house. Now, he'll have his son do it, and that's what he tells him. We're going to get to that, but he'll have, his, he'll have his son do it. But he's like, no, because I don't want you to miss the point. It's never been about that. It's never been about that. Also, David, you're not really able to because you're a man of war. He doesn't say that here, but First Chronicles, we see parallel accounts of the same story. And in case you've ever heard, why wasn't David allowed to build a temple? An answer you might hear a lot is simply because David had blood on his hands, which is true, which is part of the truth. So First Chronicles 28, I just want to make sure you know it and see it. First Chronicles 28, verse 2. It says, Hear, my brethren, or hear me, my brethren, and my people. I had it in my heart to build a house uh, of rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God and had made preparations to build it. But God said to me, you shall not build a house for my name because you've been a man of war and have shed blood. So this is also another reason really given to David at some point where like, no, you can't do this. You've been a man of war. You have blood in your hands. So if you ever hear that answer, that's true. That's true. It's like, David, this is not for you to do. There's blood on your hands. You're, I'm going to have your son do it. However, I also want us to see God's like, this is never really my desire. I just want to be with my people. I, where they go, I just want to go. If they suffer, I'll suffer with them. If they're doing well, I'll do well with them. Like, I just want to be with my people. That has been the heart of God. Now, I want to move next to the, this next thought. So we saw like the incarnation principle, but there's also this idea of the grace principle. Do you notice what God says to David? He's like, David, don't forget who you are and where you came from. Look what I called you out of. And this is not humbling. David's the king, man. David's the man. Like David has slayed his tens of thousands. He actually brought the tribes together. That's very impressive. David's the man and God's like, let me remind you of who you are and where you came from. Look at verse eight. Verse eight, it says it this way. He says, thus you shall say to my servant, David, over and over again, my servant, my servant, my servant. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheephold, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people, Israel. There's almost this idea of like, David, don't forget that everything you have is because of me. You're a shepherd. You're ruling my people because I said so. There's almost this idea of like, David, I want you to remember what you've been, what you've been called out of. I don't want you to forget grace. Let me just point it out this way. Um, a lot of times back in this day, if there was kings and they had military victories, what they would do is like, oh, I conquered this other nation. I'm going to build our God a palace on their old hill, on their mountain where their palace was. I'm going to build a palace there or a temple for our God to worship him, to say that our God's the true God. And they basically conquer and build a temple, conquer and build a temple. And it's almost this idea of like, God, look it, I'm, I'm going to do something for you. Now make sure my kingdom lasts forever. God, like I'm going to serve my God, whatever God that is. I'm going to serve my God, build this God a temple, build this God like a palace. And then 
I scratch your back, God, you scratch my back. There's almost like this quid pro quo. There's almost this idea of like, Lord, if I do this for you, you owe me. God is basically saying, David, you're not going to do anything for me and I'm not going to owe you. I'm actually going to build you something without you ever doing anything for me. It's really different. There is this mindset of like, I got to do this, build this for, so people will know our God's the one true God. Look what I've built. Look what I've done. God owes me now. And God's like, no, no, I'm going to stop you in your tracks. It's not about what you do for me. I'm going to give you a promise first before you can ever do anything for me. See, this is so counter-religion. It's like, well, if I do things for God, then God will be pleased with me. If I do things for God, maybe God owes me. And God's like, let me just stop there. We're not going to do it this way. David, you're not going to build me a palace. You're not going to build me a home. I'm going to build you a home. It has nothing to do with you or your performance or because you did something for me in my name. It's simply because I want to build you a house that lasts forever. The point of this is since for the very beginning of scriptures, we see this idea of grace, it's so different than the other gods. Again, the other gods are you do something for me, then I owe you. You, know, you do something for me, then now we're in good standing. God's like, we're just in good state. I-, I chose you. You're my son. I'm going to bless you. There's something about grace that kind of just ruins everything. for. Like we want to feel like we did something. We want to feel like we were pretty good. And God's like, no, no, no. I'm just going to do this for you because I'm good. Has nothing to do. You're, you're just, don't forget, you're a shepherd. I've called you out of that. You're going to continue to shepherd my people, Israel. But don't forget who the true, he calls him my servant, my prince. Don't forget who the true king is. Like, there is something so profound about, because again, th- at this time, all the other religions or kingdoms at this day and age, it's, okay, God, I do something for you. Now you owe me. Make my kingdom be established forever. God's just like, I'm going to establish your kingdom forever, David, without you ever doing anything like this, like building a temple in my name. It is so counter. I'm so thankful, again, we serve a God who does things just differently than the gods of their current age. How am I going to do it differently, David? It's not going to be done the same way. Now, let me point out this, too. In the promises God gives to David, there's like these little foreshadows of what God would do for us. So God says to him, I'm going to give you a great name. Uh, God says, I'm going to give you rest. So I want to point out a few things, and like you can jot this down for us. Because in these covenantal promises, there's still some covenantal promises that apply to us today that Paul repeats in the New Testament. So first one's this, a new identity, a new identity. I want you to understand what God says to David. God says, uh, look at verse 9, have I not made you a great name, like the name of the great men who are on the earth? I want you to say this, God's like, I'm going to give you a great name. Hey, David, you're gonna have a, you were once that shepherd boy. You were once the, the guy that was pursued by Saul. You're going to have a great name. Can I tell you that in Christ, you and I have a new identity, that God gives us a new name, that Revelation talks about how the church that endures, he'll give a new name to uh, us, and he'll write that new name on a stone. That the idea of a new name is there's a new identity behind that. Maybe you are known a certain way, and God's like, that's not what you're going to be known for. You have a new name. You have a new family. When you have a new name, if you took on a new last name, maybe you got married, you have now a new last name, or you got adopted, you have a new last name, that with that new name comes a new family. With that new name comes everything else. Do we see that in this covenant to David, God's like, you're going to have a great name. And I, I think Paul, he just repeats this, that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. All things have become new. This is so encouraging me that, to know that in this covenant that you and I have a new name. We have a new name. Next, we have a new home. Verse 10, he says, I will appoint a place for my people. I mean, what did Jesus say in John 14? He goes, in my father's house are many dwelling places. I go to prepare a place for you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to build a home for you. Jesus told us that he's like, you know what? It's, it's good for me. 
I'm going to send, I'm going to go to the Father, and I'm going to build a home for you guys. That in my Father's house, in, in heaven, there are many dwelling places, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. That is the craziest thought when I think about Jesus preparing a place for us. God prepared a new home for us. I know you have a home. I'm going to give you a better home, a new home. Hey, my people, Israel, you're going to have a new home. There's still this repeated in the New Testament of just a new home. I want you to know this, that again, you and I were made for a person and a place. Jesus is the person and heaven is the place. That if you ever feel like, oh, I'm not really comfortable here. Just uh, this world, like, it's just weird. I just feel like, it's because like you and I, this is not our true home. You and I were made for another place. You and I were made to dwell with God, to have a house with him. And this idea of, I'm gonna give my people a new home. He's like, yeah, this is repeated for us. We're gonna have a new home. A third idea given to David is he's going to have rest, so we have a new peace. Verse 11 says, I'm going to cause you to rest from all of your enemies. I just want you to see this. God's like, I'm going to give you rest. Jesus said what in Matthew 11? Come to me, all of those who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I, I want you to know this, that we serve a God who loves to give rest. The book of Joshua, the book of Hebrews, this, this major themes are God's like, enter into the promised land, the land of rest. David, I'm going to give you rest from all of your enemies. We saw that in the start of chapter 7, verse 1. David had rest from all of his enemies. We serve a God who's not going, work, 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 work. We're serving a God who says, rest, rest, rest in the finished work of what I've done. I'm giving you a promise, not because you did something. I'm initiating. I'm the one starting this off and saying, I'm going to do this. And it's like that rest comes from this place of promise. It is so sweet. Rest does not come from my hard work. It comes from what Jesus did in his work on the cross. And you can just rest. I can rest. He's I'm gonna give you rest from all your enemies. In this covenant, God has given to David and for his family's future generations. We see so many of these repeated themes in the covenant God gives to us. But I want to point out a couple of just key things. Verse 11, God says what? Also, the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. So this idea, God, David's like, I want to build you a house. God's like, I'm going to build you a house. Now, verse 13, remember this, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 13 and verse 14. It's kind of what's like built, like the New Testament is built off these verses in so many ways. Verse 13, read this again. He says, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So when you read 2 Samuel 7, 13, Know this, this is a messianic verse. This is pointing to the Messiah. He's saying, David, you're gonna have a son and he's gonna have a kingdom that's gonna last and rule forever. Now I wanna point something out because maybe you read this, you're like, oh, I don't know, Josiah. It talks about sin. So look at verse 14. Let me just point this out, verse 14. It says, I will be his father, he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. So you're like, oh, if he commits iniquity, I thought Jesus can't commit sin. You're right. So bear with me. Um, usually Old Testament prophecies have a double or dual meaning. There's usually this immediate meaning and a long-term meaning. Meaning, There's so many verses that actually refer to the short term. Maybe God is talking about a future king or a future ruler, but he's also referring to the future Messiah. And so it has like a short-term meaning and a long-term meaning. So for example, we know 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is referring to Solomon. Absolutely. This is absolutely referring to Solomon. Solomon will build a temple. Solomon will be uh, the king after David. He will be the next king. He will build a temple for him. This is speaking of Solomon. Absolutely, it is no doubt. But primarily, it's speaking of Jesus and his kingdom that will rule and reign forever. The idea of if he sins in this iniquity thing, this is in response to Solomon. 
But we see that ultimately he's repeating over time and time again this idea that his kingdom will be forever, forever. This idea, you know, maybe you've heard this kind of analogy before, but when prophets maybe gave a prophecy and there's a dual meaning, it means it has a a response to the short term and long term. Usually it's kind of confusing. Like, I don't know, what am I talking about here? Is this about the Messiah or is this about this person? Like, what is this about? Like Isaiah 7 has that kind of flow to it. Uh, I don't want to lose you, but here's the idea. Imagine you have two mountain peaks. This illustration is getting a lot all over time, but you have two mountain peaks and you see these mountain peaks and you go, oh, they look like they're right next to each other. But in reality, maybe there's like a, a valley in between them. The closer you get, the more you realize, oh, this is not just referring to one mountain range, but two different mountain ranges. I had no idea there's such a gap in between them. The idea is this has a short-term response to Solomon, but the closer you get, you go, oh my gosh, it so speaks of Jesus. So much so that we see 2 Samuel 7, verse 13 and 14 repeated often. And this idea that it refers to Solomon and Jesus. Let me put it this way. Um, One author said it this way, Tertullian, first century kind of church father. He says, if you tell me 2 Samuel 7 is just about Solomon, you will send me into a fit of laughter (laughs) because Christ, rather than any other, was to build the temple of God. That is to say, a holy manhood, wherein God's spirit might dwell as in a better temple. Christ, rather than David's son Solomon, was to be looked for as the son of God. Tertullian, this church father from back in the day, says, hey, we know that the temple to be built, yes, Solomon built the temple, but what did Jesus say? Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Referring to what? His body. This temple that would be built by his son is not just the son Solomon, but it's the son Jesus. And this idea of 2 Samuel 7, this Davidic covenant is saying, yes, your son will build a temple, but know that there will be another. He calls him my son here as well. My son will build and his throne will be established forever. Just repeat it over and over, forever, forever. So we see this idea that his kingdom is ruling and reigning forever. By the way, this is what that means. Um, When you see this idea of God's kingdom being just ruling and reigning forever, the idea means death does not stop this covenant. Time does not stop this covenant. Sin does not stop this covenant. When he's saying this kingdom shall be established forever, he's saying it doesn't matter if you die, your son dies. This idea that there will be a kingdom that will happen forever and ever. Time does not stop it. Death does not stop it. Sin does not stop it because this is an unconditional covenant that I'm making with you. Nothing can stop his kingdom from ruling and reigning forever. You know, if you follow actually the history of David, you will know that the tribes break up. There's a northern tribe, 10 tribes, southern tribe eventually. Here's what's interesting. David's sons, they will continue to be the king in the southern tribe. So David's grandkids and great-grandkids, they'll continue to be the kings after David, like God promised. The northern tribe, it's not dynastic like that. It's just people fighting for power. Different people come in. It's no longer through the sons of David. But it still happens in in the tribe of Judah, in the the southern kingdom. And God's promise is fulfilled in that way. Then ultimately, in the New Testament, like I said, Matthew and Luke, Jesus comes on the scene, and this is the son of David, who rules and reigns forever and ever. This is the idea that's given here. God will be faithful to do it. It actually says this in Psalm 89. I just will end with this verse for this point. Psalm 89, God says, I will not violate my covenant covenant, or alter the word that went from my lips. He says, once for all I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. A faithful witness in the skies. But you think, but David, wasn't the kingdom destroyed? I mean, didn't like the Romans come in eventually? Like, was there not a king ruling and reigning? We see that ultimately Jesus on both sides He's the son of David, and his kingdom is established forever. That God's word was fulfilled, not just in Solomon, but primarily in the person of Jesus. Now, so here's what I want to move up. David's like, I'm going to build you a house. God's like, I'm going to build you a house. Verse 18 through 29, David's like, yeah, yeah. Can you build me that house you talked about? That's pretty cool. So let's read. Verse 18. Three. Verse 18. Let's keep reading. David's response is so beautiful. 
So all this is said to him. Verse 18. All this is said to David, verse 17 says. Nathan spoke it. Verse 18. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You've spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction of, of, for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God. For there is none like you. That's where you can say amen. Let's try it again. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you. And there is no God besides you. According to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel? The one nation on earth, whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them a great and awesome things by driving out before your people, whom you redeem for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house and do as you have spoken. Do what you said. Verse 26. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, the Lord of hosts is God over Israel and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel have made this revelation to your servant saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God and your words are true. And you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. I want to point out what David's doing in a second, but it's so funny to me. God's like, I'm going to build your house. And he's like, remember what you said about building me a house like one second ago? Will you build me the house? It's like, do it, Lord. Do it. Now, now, let's just break this down. It's right when David hears this, verse 18. It says, David went in and sat before the Lord. There is something so profound about this. God gives him this incredible word. And he's like, I just need to sit down. I need to sit down and say, who am I? Who am I that you should do this for me and for my house? I don't know if you've ever like, been reading God's word and you actually believe it. You actually read it and go, I believe this. And you go, who am I that you are mindful of me? I honestly wonder if David wrote Psalm 8 out of this, that famous Psalm, who am I? What is man that you're mindful of him? But David goes, who am I? Who am I, God? I don't know if it's ever struck you all that God has done for you, like really struck you. Does it, do you ever like look back at your life and go, I can't believe he saved me. Like, I can't believe like me, my heart so gross, so wicked, so wanting to do its own thing and God came after me. Who am I? There is something so needed. Like this is not a one-time thing in our Christian life. There should be these moments in our life we look back and go, I can't believe God would do this for me. David just like hears this amazing message, sits down and is like, ah, who am I God that you would think of my house? Who am I that you'd think of me? Like, I just want to sit and dwell in this. It's like what Paul said, and Paul's like, I am the chiefest of all sinners, and God saved me so I could be an example to all those who would one day believe. And Paul's like, I can't believe God saved me, this, the chiefest of sinners. Who am I that you would save me, God? There's something beautiful when someone just sits down and goes, God, I can't believe you, you would do this for someone like me. David hears this amazing message. I'm going to build you a house forever, David. He sits down, and he just starts praying. Now, I want to point out what he's doing. You know, he's talking this promise or this covenant back to God. This is so necessary. I don't know if you know this, but so often... <laughs> 
when men are praying or when you see in scriptures men praying prayers to God, they're usually praying what they just heard. So for example, um, basically Moses so often be like, God, what you promised to Abraham, do that. Nehemiah says, God, what you promised to Moses, do that. Daniel's like, God, what you promised to Jeremiah about 70 years in captivity and being released, do that. So often what we need to do is pray back to God what he already promised us. There's something about just going, God, this is what your word says. I'm just talking out loud with you about it. Will you do it? There's something about that because if you've ever read like promises from God and you're like, "Eh, I don't know, was that real? Did that happen? I'd say, talk those promises back to God. It's saying, God, you're faithful. You said this. David over and over again, we'll put out verses, but David's like, God, you said you'd build me a house. Now will you do that? Like you you promised to do this, so please do it. There's something really sweet about just talking God's word back to him. I don't know what it is, but there's a difference between reading the Bible and believing the Bible. You guys know that, right? There's definitely a difference between me reading the Bible and me believing it. Me reading promises and me believing promises. And I'd say, like, how do I go from just reading to believing? I'd say, just talk it over with God. Like, talk it over with him. Hey, God, you, you promised this. You said this. Uh, will you do that? And, like, sit there. <laughs> and, like, oh, wait, you already did do it. And I didn't realize that. Then here's how you already did it in my life. And you can almost, like, God like, begins to show you, like, how he already did it or how he's going to do it. And you're like, oh, wow, thank you, Lord. David is just talking over this covenant back over to God. That's what he's doing. Like over and over again. Uh, and I love this. He even says, God, this is, this is based off of your greatness. This is based off who you are. Not me. This is based off your greatness, your goodness. That all the nations will see you and say, great is the Lord. He, there is no God besides him. The whole point of this is like, we want people to see those things in your life and our life to go, maybe that's the one true God. Maybe there's no God beside him. Maybe there's no other explanation other than, than Jesus and his death and his resurrection. Maybe nothing else makes sense other than that. How can someone face suffering or death or trials that way? And you go, Jesus, because I have fellowship with, in this suffering, that I have a, a weird, unique relationship with Jesus now through suffering. Like, oh, wow, maybe there's something about your God. That people go, there's no God besides your God. He's like, this is what I want the nations to see. A lot of times too, uh, you'll see people like point back to God's character. Like, God, you don't want, Moses does this. God, you don't want the nations to see you make this decision and, and question your character. But what they're, like, they're like appealing to just who God is, his identity and what he's done. They're saying, God, you promised this. I know this is not like you, God. Or God, do this. You said you do this. Fulfill this. And they're just simply talking it over with God. And that's how it ends. Just David talking this over to God. He's just praying this prayer. He's like, God, hear this prayer. Do what you said. I love what a few guys said about this. Prayer, listen, prayer is nothing but the promise reversed or God's word turned inside out and formed into an argument and retorted back again upon God by faith. <laughs> that's what one Puritan said about prayer. It's like, I'm, a, I'm just going to revert what you said back to me. You said this, I'm just going to say it back to you. Another guy in a similar way said, John Trapp, promises must be prayed over. God loves to be burdened with and to be urgent pressed with requests in his own words. He loves to even be sued upon his own bond. For praying is putting God's promise into suit. And it is no arrogancy nor presumption to burden God, as it were, with his own promise. Just talk it over with God. God, you said this. This is probably one of the best ways to go from reading the Bible to actually believing it. Just talking that promise back over to God. God, you said this. You would do this. John put it this way. 1 John 5, 14. He says, this is the confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. This is the confidence. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Basically saying, what's, what's his will? His, his scripture, his word. If you take his word and say, God, I'm asking you something that you said you would do. It says he hears us. God, you said you would heal the brokenhearted. You said you'd set captives free. God, you said you would reach and save the lost. I'm asking you to do that. 
Reach and save this person. Open their heart. Open their eyes. Remove the blinders. Maybe we should just pray those promises back to God and actually believe them. Maybe we shouldn't just read them and be like, well, I hope that's true for someone else. Maybe you should be, God, you said this. You said, I'm holding you to your word. Would you please do this? I beg you. There's something about saying, God, I'm holding And if you ask anything according to his will. So what's his will? His word. So repeat his word back to him. He hears. There's something profound about praying his word back to him. And he hears. This is the Davidic covenant. David, I'm going to give you a great name. David, you're going to have a son, and the son's kingdom shall rule and reign forever. And obviously it's not Solomon. It's the person Jesus. And it's fulfilled in him. And the whole New Testament begins based off this Davidic covenant and saying, remember the genealogy of David? Here it is. And it's found and fulfilled in Jesus. And we have Jesus whose kingdom has no end. Death cannot destroy it. Time cannot destroy it. Nothing can stop his kingdom. It will rule and reign forever. He will rule and reign forever. And we look at David and we look at the story and we just remember God's faithfulness to provide through his son, Jesus. Listen, the covenants that are described again, there was a new covenant that was promised after David's Jeremiah 31. I will give you a new covenant. I'll write it on your heart. This new covenant was fulfilled at the table of communion. Jesus said, and Paul repeats in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-five. Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Can I tell you, we are going to take communion. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to say, Jesus, thank you for this new covenant. That yes, there's a Davidic covenant and that's a fulfilling your son, Jesus, but there's a new covenant. And at that table with the disciples, you said, this is the new covenant, my blood. That you and I enter into a new covenant with God, this covenant of grace because of the blood of Jesus. And here's the idea. We eat and we drink doing this till he comes. This idea of Jesus, we, we want to see your throne be established forever. We know it is. We're going to do this and remember this until you, we see you physically ruling and reigning like you promised. Jesus, we're looking for this day. And we do this to remember. Listen, let me say this. Um, I just want to make this time of like celebration. That communion is not just some heavy thing. It's a time to say, yes, thank you, that by your stripes we are healed. That without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And your blood was shed, Jesus. Thank you. I can have forgiveness of sins because your blood was shed. I can have a new covenant with you, a new dynamic with you, a new relationship with you because of what you've done for me. And so we take this little cup, we drink of it, we look at that juice and we go, Jesus, this speaks of your blood that was shed for me. Thank you. This little wafer on top that I taste kind of funny. doesn't matter. But I would take it and go, Jesus, this is you. Your body was broken for me so that I don't have to be broken. Your body was broken for me so I could be restored to you. Your body was broken for me so I could one day have a new body in heaven. Thank you. And we take this little cup that has this little bread, this little juice, and we say, it's your body and it's your blood, and thank you, Jesus. And we just want to take communion. Why don't we do this? I'm going to invite the worship team back up here. We're going to pray. We're going to worship. I'm going to say, don't be in a hurry to eat and drink. Just thank Jesus for a little bit. Thank him for this new covenant. He gave David a covenant, but he also gave you a covenant, and it's fulfilled in his son, Jesus. Why don't you just bow your heads really quick? Why don't you just take a second, even before you eat or drink, why don't you just close your eyes? Why don't you just thank Jesus? We're told that during Passover, it says, and Jesus gave thanks. He gave thanks. Why don't you just, in your heart, talk to God and just give thanks? Just thank him for who he is, for what he's done. I'm going to pray, but I'm just going to invite you to just reflect on the cross Reflect on this covenant. Reflect on what God has done for you. During worship, feel free to eat and drink when you're ready. Feel free to sing. Feel free to cry out to the Lord. 
We're just going to worship him a little bit. So, Father, we just want to say thank you. Thank you for your son, Jesus, who's the ultimate fulfillment of David's throne being established forever. That is Jesus' throne. We thank you for your blood that was shed for us, your body that was broken for us. Thank God your, your body was broken so you could form a whole new body, the body of Christ. We just say thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God, that the only way we have access to you is through you, Jesus, that the veil was torn, that God, you said, come on in. You have access to my presence. And we just want to say thank you, Jesus. Lord, be here, be present as we worship, as we sing, as we reflect on you. God, we ask that you'd be near. You are, you are the incarnational God, the God who walks among us. We had, you are the God who's with us, that you inhabit the praises of your people. God, we believe that. That has been your heart from the very beginning, to just be with us in the garden to be with us in the tabernacle, to be with us in the person of Jesus, to be with us by your spirit in our lives. We thank you that you are the God that is with us. We just praise you and look to you, Jesus. You're so good. We worship you.